Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97,000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. While we break for community groups during the summer, we'd love for you to stay connected through men's and women's groups on Wednesday nights at 6. Our summer schedule is in full swing. We had an awesome time celebrating our church's 15-year anniversary at the May Play Day. Be sure to stay connected to our app and social media platforms for upcoming events and outreaches that you can be a part of. As we get ready to enter into corporate worship, if you're worried about having little ones in service with you, we want you to be at ease. We love kids and have a lot of them here. There are coloring sheets in the back of the sanctuary, our kids ministry is always available to you, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right. Man, we have a lot of kids. <laughs> Service is like super full. And then it's like, all right, there went half of it right there. So, <laughs> all right. Well, hey, my, my name is Tad Anderson. I am the lead teaching pastor here uh, at the Hub City Church. And so, again, on behalf of our church, we're so thankful that you're here uh, to worship Jesus with us this morning. And uh, just a few things to, to chat about real quick, and then we'll move to the word. Um, first of all, I just want to celebrate uh, the May Play Day last week. We had an awesome time together. Yeah, yeah, celebrating 15 years together as a church. We, uh, yeah, yeah, we can clap for that. Hey, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to 15 more at least. So we, um, we highly value discipleship as a church. We highly value outreach and evangelistic conversations. Uh, but we also highly value friendship and playing together like that because it affords us times of just kind of hanging out and getting to know one another uh, better without any other kind of agenda attached to that. That helps hold us together better over time. And so uh, with that said, uh, since it's summer and kids are out of school and community groups are paused, we have another fellowship in the backyard planned this month, uh, our backyard movie night. We have a big blow-up movie screen, and we'll do popcorn and candy and watch the Super Mario Brothers movie, because that uh, sounded good to me. I haven't seen it yet, and I figured it might uh, be fun for the kids. So uh, anyway, that's Friday, June 16th at 6.30, uh, and so we'll hope, we hope you'll join us for that as well. And then the last thing is um, our 4th of July outreach. So every year, uh, as a church for like five years running now, we, we collect a ton of bottled water together at the end of June, and then we go out collectively as a, a church family to Twin Hills Park for the city's fourth, uh, July 4th event, and we kind of just camp out there uh, together 
to watch the fireworks later on, but leading up to that, as uh, we're hanging out, we just pass free water to our uh, cold water to our community. It's a good way, uh, like our Easter outreach in the park, uh, to just love our community together by doing something kind for them and getting into gospel conversations as we have the opportunity. Not everyone obviously wants to talk about Jesus, uh, but as we're passing water, and last year we did popsicles and, and glow sticks as well, we, we do have the opportunity to chat with families there in the park and hopefully let them know who we are as the Hub City Church and, uh, and why we're out there, which is to show the love of Christ, right? So um, anyway, we'll have more uh, about that, those events on our app and our social media platforms. So just stay uh, connected that way and you'll see more as those things draw near. Okay, well, we are currently uh, about a month into a teaching series through the New Testament book of Ephesians. It's called Life Together in Christ because uh, the first half of the letter is a lengthy and beautiful articulation of gospel doctrine, and then the back half of the letter is mostly application of that doctrine to individuals, families, and churches who are doing life together in Christ. In chapter 1, uh, if you've been here for it, it had a ton of really deep doctrinal things for us to consider about the will of God. But today we are embarking into chapter 2, which if you know anything about key sections of Scripture, you probably know the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 are absolutely critical to our understanding of the Christian faith, namely how we are saved, like in a technical sense, okay? Because um, of, of, of the importance of this passage, we're, we're going to break it really in, into two messages. Um, they'll both be called Saved by Grace. It'll just be Saved by Grace, part one and part two. This week, we're going to cover verses one through nine, and next week, we'll circle back and we'll address eight through ten, okay? So let's, uh, as always, let's read the text, and then we will pray, and then we'll dive into it. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, God, we thank you and praise you again for this day and all of the blessings of life and all of just all that entails. But, but most of all, we thank you for Jesus and the great joy and privilege of meeting together as his church this morning. Lord, we are thankful for this church family that you have knitted us together with in the new covenant by your blood. We don't take it for granted, God, and we pray that you would help us collectively to continue to grow in true knowledge of you and love for one another 
and the hope of our salvation that motivates our mission of making disciples. So this morning, God, as we, as we discuss one of the single most important gospel doctrines, Lord, would you please help me? Help me to be clear and bold and help everyone who is here hearing these words to not simply hear me, but to hear you and your words to us from Ephesians 2 about the only way you have made for us to be saved. God, we don't ever want there to be any confusion around this topic as people who are called to live lives in light of the gospel. So please, Holy Spirit, do what only you can and further open the eyes of our hearts by your power and help us to treasure the message of salvation by grace. It's in Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen. Well, coming off of Memorial Day this week and headed towards July 4th, let me just say, I love America. I love America. We've had uh, a lot of kind of anti-American sentiments crop up culturally in the past few years where, you know, some would say we should feel so personally guilty about our collective history to the point that we should tear it down and refuse to honor those who have helped build it and fight for it, and I disagree with that. Sure, I think there's still some work to be done, and there are definitely things that could stand to change in our nation, but for the most part, I think it's been a good experiment. That said, I am not one of these people who gets my faith tangled up with my patriotism. Okay, Love for God and love for country are both good things, but they're not even in the same ballpark for me. Okay, The former is infinitely more important than the latter. And because of that, while I think uh, we should not erase our founding fathers from their rightful place in the establishment of our republic, I also don't think we should view them with rose-colored glasses. Okay, Church, America, this is for free, okay? America is not a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. Because a lot of our founding fathers, upon close examination of their writings, were not Christians in a biblical sense. In fact, a lot of the things they said about Christianity were way off. If you don't like that I'm saying this, you can go look it up for yourself. But I'll just use Benjamin Franklin as an example in order to segue into our discussion on Ephesians 2. I'm glad he did some helpful things with electricity. Think you should get to stay on the $100 bill, okay? But no one should take anything he said as authoritative when it comes to faith. Benjamin Franklin, quite famously, and in my opinion, very unfortunately, quipped, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. My response, in the words of Dwight Schrute is false. (laughs) False. If you have read the Bible with any degree of perception of its major themes at all, you will know that that is false. And if not, please allow Ephesians 2 to absolutely obliterate that horribly heretical statement crystallized by Benjamin Franklin. Love what he said about independence. Despise what he said 
about the nature of Christianity. And if you're thinking, okay, Tad, thanks for that historical tidbit, but your passion on the issue seems high, considering Benjamin Franklin's long gone. (laughs) To that, I would say yes. But self-help is now a multi-billion dollar industry, and it has continued to bleed over into the minds of professing Christians at the behest of false teachers who claim that Christianity is merely an ancient means to a better life on earth, replete with greater physical comforts and more material wealth. That is the prosperity gospel. That's the prosperity gospel. Christianity made to be a means of spiritual self-help by which we can live our best lives now. This is wrong. This is wrong. So, if you're offended, let's keep going. It gets worse than that. So let's read the first few verses of Ephesians 2 again. And I hope you'll start to pick up what I'm putting down here. Just a refresher, okay? Uh, At the end of chapter 1... Paul was saying that he'd been praying for the Ephesian church, that they would have the eyes of their hearts open to see the truth of God more clearly, and that they would understand his great power toward them in the resurrection of Christ. And so coming off of that, here's what he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a pretty strong an untwistable statement, isn't it? That the apostle is making about the state of humanity without Christ. Okay, Here's how I would summarize it. Before Christ, people are not merely dumb or deficient. They are spiritually dead and filled with disdain for God, with nothing they can do to change it. Before Christ, people are not merely dumb or deficient. They're spiritually dead and filled with disdain for God, with nothing they can do to change it. If upon hearing that, you're thinking, dang, that's pretty dark and depressing then you're understanding it rightly. You're understanding it rightly. Guys, the bad news of Scripture is really bad. It's really bad. And there is this weak sauce prosperity gospel out there that tries to posture Jesus as your Heavenly co-pilot, just there to help you reach all your worldly dreams safely and successfully. Or as your spiritual hippie friend, 
who's there to help you chill, because like, it's all good, man. Or as your divine boyfriend, who's there to tell you to go wash your face, because you're enough, girl, right? It's, it's kind of funny, but it's true. These, all, all of these non-biblical Jesuses, I didn't make them up. They really exist out there, okay? People are, are posturing Jesus this way, and they all flow out of the same false gospel, and it falls short. It falls short because first and foremost, they miss the seriousness of the human problem. The problem, Ephesians 2 says, is that we are dead spiritually, Because of our own sin. That apart from Christ, the lights might be on, but no one's at home. We're like spiritual zombies before understanding and believing the gospel. And this is reiterated all throughout Scripture. In Colossians 1, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In Psalm 14, Old Testament references here, it says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. If you go further back in the Old Testament, let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Most famously, perhaps, in Romans chapter 1. If you've not read Romans 1, I commend it to you. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. These passages together with Ephesians 2 help frame the sinful state of spiritual death that all of us are in before Christ. Before Christ, 
It's not as though we're just caught in rough seas in need of a flotation device thrown to us. We're not just dumb or deficient. We don't just need someone to toss us a Dave Ramsey book on budgeting. Okay? We don't just need to start listening to the snarky conservative ideology of Matt Walsh. We don't just need to subscribe to the 30-second life hacks of another relatable quasi-Christian influencer who makes us feel better about our messy house. Okay. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a budget or an opinion on politics or try to be more efficient in your day-to-day -day life. I'm saying those things are not anywhere near the solution to your main need, biblically. Amen. The Bible says... That the base level problem for every single person ever is that we are disconnected from God by our own sin. That we are dead and thus blind to the most important spiritual realities of our existence. Namely, our need for God. And that our hearts are passively disinterested and actively filled with distaste for God and the truth of how he says life ought to be lived under his righteous rule and reign. Amen. We hate that naturally. That's what the Bible says. We hate that naturally. This is what it means to be a sinner. That because of the fall, we are all predisposed to be depraved, that is corrupt, wicked, perverted, okay? None of us naturally love God like we're supposed to. And actually, Ephesians 2 would say that we're like lemmings being led around by the devil himself via the temporary sway that he has over the currents of our messed up culture that tempt our flesh to disobey God in a myriad of pleasure-seeking ways. Amen. Using sex, money, power, food, entertainment in ways that totally dishonor God and disregard his design for them all. Okay. And so I, I hope you're still with me because here is why the statement, God helps those who help themselves, here's why that's trash theology. Because the Bible says no one can help themselves. The Bible says no one can help themselves. The sin problem that we have is too bad. Our spiritual condition, apart from divine intervention, is both hopeless and helpless. And so I say, before Christ, people are not merely dumb or deficient. They are spiritually dead and filled with disdain for God with nothing they can do to change it. This message often does not fill churches, but it's the only message that will save souls from destruction. Amen. This is the biblical message, that your sinful state 
is so bad that if you were going to live, then Jesus, the perfect son of God, had to die. If you and I were going to live, Jesus had to die. Have you ever really sat with that? you ever tried to feel the weight of that? I get it. We don't like the sound of that. We don't like the sound of it. As a subsection of the most affluent nation that's ever existed, it often offends our modern sensibilities. We don't like being told that there's nothing we can do to fix a problem. That's why the gospel is offensive. If you've ever heard someone say the gospel is offensive, this is why. This is why the gospel is offensive. Because we don't like being told that we can't fix our own problem. We think, surely there's something with two-day shipping or a pay-over-time plan that can help. Surely there's a YouTube video we can watch. Or if we have to, a book we can read. Or worst case, a professional we can hire. We think there must be something we can do. And the Bible says, no. No. It matters not who you are. Your money, your reputation, your family, your education, your intellect, your accomplishments, and your strength are no good to you. They're no good to you. You can't go back, and you can't do better. And even if you could, it would never be enough. It would never be enough. You see, self Help is a dead end for spiritually dead people. Self-help is a dead end for spiritually dead people. You don't throw a life raft to someone who's already drowned. Right? And that's the picture that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, paints of every single one of us in our spiritual state before Christ. Okay, not struggling to swim and in need of a little bit of help, face down in the water, not breathing, dead and being taken by the currents of the world. But then come two of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, okay? <laughs> Two of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You guys don't seem super excited. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, I had to go hard on the beginning. Stay with me, okay? It, that, you have to do that. You guys ever read the Old Testament book of Jonah? God tells the prophet Jonah, if you haven't read it, here's a summary. God tells the prophet Jonah to go on a mission that he doesn't want to go on. Okay? So he literally hops on a ship and goes the exact opposite direction. Okay? It's a pretty stupid plan, but that's how sin works. Okay? <laughs> We're blind to our own foolishness. And as Jonah is running away from God, which is not possible, by the way, God sends a huge storm, and the crew thinks the ship is going to capsize, and they're all going to die, and Jonah knows it's his fault, right? Jonah knows it's his fault. So long story short, <laughs> they do the logical thing. They throw Jonah overboard. They throw Jonah overboard, and he's sinking to his death in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, with no form of recourse. It was his own sinful disdain for God that got him there. Right? And then, out of nowhere, a giant fish, sent by the God who sent the giant storm, right, <laughs> comes along and loom, swallows Jonah. Swallows Jonah, saving his life. He repents in the belly of the fish, and then the fish spits him back out on dry land three days later. <laughs> this is the perfect analogy of what happens for us between verse 3 and 4 of Ephesians 2. You follow me? <laughs> we were hopelessly and helplessly spiritually dead before Christ, but God snatched us up and made us alive. He made us alive. And so here's what you need to take away from this. There is only one means of salvation. Spiritually regenerate faith in the infinitely merciful and unfathomably loving grace of God in Christ. <laughs> That's the only way. It's the only way to be saved. So let's Let's break that apart so we can do our best to wrap our minds around it. And then I'm going to give you some application, okay? So first of all, why did I have to go and complicate faith by adding the words spiritually regenerate? My wife thinks it's because I just like being overly wordy. It's not, I promise, okay? It's because God knew that if he saved us by his grace alone via faith, and that was it, <laughs> some of us just can't help ourselves. We just want to take some credit, right? <laughs> uh, if we could, we would say, like a celebrity at an awards ceremony, first, I just want to thank God 
and His grace, without which this would not be possible, but also, just a little bit, me. For my awesome, really smart, and perfect faith. Obviously God mostly, but also me. I helped, like pretty substantially. (laughs) And by so doing, we would blow it. Just like we had blown it with our sin before. We would try to make salvation about something that we did. We would cancel out grace by acting like it was something that we earned. So Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, fully clarified numerous times in a row. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, pretty clear. And this is not your own doing. Okay, got it. It's the gift of God. All right. Not a result of works. Okay, we get it. So that no one may boast, right? Do you see here that he left zero room for misunderstanding the fact that even the faith we needed to receive God's grace was given to us as a gift? And this is what is called regeneration. You see, um, Faith could not come out of our spiritually blind and dead hearts. And so God gave us new, regenerated hearts that would believe the gospel and trust Jesus in faith. Okay, We see this truth echoed time and again. I don't have time to read all of them, but um, in John 3, regeneration is referred to as new birth. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So you see, this is the spiritually piece of it. It's got to be in there, right? You get the regenerate part, but the spiritually part has to be in there too. Or else we'd say we regenerated our own hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who induces new birth. He's the one who induces new birth or regeneration. And the way he does, or who he does it in, Jesus says, is as mysterious as the wind when it blows. Where it's coming from or where it goes to next, we don't know. It's out of our ability to understand or control. In John 6.44, speaking again of our total inability to do this ourselves, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's the first aspect of the only means of our salvation. It's by spiritually regenerate faith only. Only. Now, if you're struggling with that, Let me try to help. I'm here to try to help. Okay, To insist upon saying that we did something that somehow helped our own salvation. If you really want to say that, that's fine. But let me tell you what that's like. Um, It's like my kids during sports seasons. Okay, They always want to buy something from the concession stand. Okay, (laughs) But to be clear... Here's how they want that to go, okay? (laughs) Not like 
we go together and they tell me what they want and I buy it for them. No, no. They want me to go with them and they want me to hand them the money so that they pay for it. (laughs) So that they pay for it. Okay. Um, This is how the relationship of faith works in the midst of the salvific process. Except to make the analogy perfect, it's like God um, is our Father who also owns the concession stand. Okay? (laughs) And we want to pay for it. So he gives us the money of faith just so we can hand it right back to him in exchange for the grace. Right? It's like Do you see that? (laughs) This is why the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards famously said, we bring nothing to the equation of our own salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Okay. God does it all. God does it all. That's the message of Ephesians 2. In the process of our salvation, God does it all. All, and he does it out of the infinitely merciful and unfathomably loving grace in Christ. Now, I know some of that's been tough, and so you, you might be tempted to think that because we're able to bring nothing to the table in our salvation, that it might be kind of like an eye roll kind of thing, right, for God. But he's not like us. He's not like us. The text says that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. His saving us is not begrudging, not even a little bit. He doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because he wants to. He wants to. As a good father is compassionate towards his kids, and doesn't protect them from danger out of duty, but out of love. So it is with God. So it is with God. In Matthew 9, we see such a beautiful reflection of the Father's heart in Christ. In Matthew 9, 12 and 13, and then jumping to verse 36, listen to what it says. It's talking about Jesus. It says, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word in verse 36, compassion, in the Greek, it literally means he felt it in his his bowels. That's the word, bowels, which implies that when God sees us in our desperate need, it's like he feels sick for us. The same way that we would if we heard that one of our own children were in some kind of dire strait, right? This is God's mercy toward us. This is God's mercy toward us. 
And of his loving grace, so many have said it so much better than I could, uh, A.W. Tozer <clears throat> describes saving grace, the saving grace of God this way. He says, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It's a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, and welcome the outcast, and bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is grace, right? This is the loving grace of God. I hope that's helpful for you because it's pretty extensive. If you're still scratching your head a bit, that's why I threw the unfathomable bit in there, right? Because I think we just, we're going to keep scratching our heads on this. Why? Would God love us even after we had all sinned so grievously against him? <laughs> because it's who he is. It's who he is. He is love. He is rich in mercy. And in, and in his unfathomable love, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so because of nothing at all done by us in totally unmerited favor through the sacrifice of Christ by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, he just made us alive. Made us alive and raised us to and positionally seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Titus 3 really sums this up really well. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out to us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is the only means of salvation that exists for us. This is the only way. Spiritually regenerate faith and the infinitely merciful and unfathomably loving grace of Christ. That is, in the perfect life lived for us, the atoning death died for us on the cross, and the triumphant resurrection of Christ. That's what our faith is in. That's the gospel, okay? And I love, right here at the end, I love verse 7, where Paul brings it. As always, he keeps bringing it back to the glory of God, right? As the primary motivation of God behind it all. Why did he choose to do it this way? Why did he choose to do it this way? Verse 7, if you want to look at that, says, So that in the coming ages, right? So that in the coming ages, he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <laughs> um, years ago, we'd taken our kids to Disney. And I have an acquaintance who works for Hilton Hotels who kindly added me to their friends and family account that gives us a really good rate on shorter stays. And so we stayed in this one, um, how do I say it? We stayed in this one really bougie hotel one night on Disney property uh, for the young kids here. Really nice hotel on Disney property. It was like, you know, <laughs> it's like ballet only. You walk in, there's like Disney music playing, but it's classical, you know? <laughs> Everybody in there is wearing, um, you know, like Vineyard Vines or L.L. Bean or like whatever rich people wear. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, our, our room, our room didn't have a coffee maker in it. Uh, it had a Nespresso machine. Nespresso. <laughs> and as we're walking through the hallways and the lobby with our ratchet little kids from Crestview... <laughs> It was just very apparent that people were trying really hard to not make it obvious that they were looking at us because we clearly did not belong there. Okay. But we got all jacked up on espresso shots and had a great time anyway. <laughs> all right? So friends and family, baby. So um, what's up? <laughs> And based on verse 7, I think this is kind of a snapshot of what life will be like forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We're just going to be in like disbelief every day. Like, can you believe this? Can you believe that? Like, this is so nice, too nice for us. except no one will be looking at us sideways because we're on Jesus' friends and family plan. He put us on it. Not because of anything we did to deserve it, but so that his amazing grace and kindness to save sinners would be on display for eternity. So in closing, I told you... <clears throat> I will give you some application. I attribute this application in part to Watchman Nee, an indigenous church planter in China in the 1930s who wrote a famous little book on Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand. Of Ephesians 2, here's, here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit. But that's a reversal of the true order. Our natural reason says, if we do not walk, how can we ever reach the goal? What can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is an odd business. If at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. Thus, Ephesians opens with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and we are invited at the very outset to sit down 
and enjoy what God has done for us, not to set out and try to attain it for ourselves. He goes on to say, walking implies effort. Whereas God says, we're saved not by works, but by grace through faith. We are saved by resting in the Lord Jesus. We did nothing whatsoever to save ourselves. We simply laid upon him the burden of our sin-sick souls. We began our Christian life by depending not upon our own doing, but upon what he had done. Until a man does this, he is no Christian. For to say, I can do nothing to save myself, but by his grace, God has done everything for me in Christ. That is to take the first step in the life of faith. The Christian life from start to finish is based upon this principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus. There is no limit to the grace that God is willing to bestow upon us. He will give us everything, but we can receive none of it until we rest in him. Sitting is an attitude of rest. Something has been finished. Work stops and we sit. It's paradoxical, but true, that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. So here's the application today. Sit in humble amazement at your own salvation. (laughs) Sit in humble amazement at your own salvation. That's it. That's the whole thing. Some of us, perhaps, some of us are maybe getting caught up trying to measure up or clean ourselves up before we come to Christ. Friend, listen, if that's you, stop. Stop. You can never measure up on your own, and you can never clean yourself up for Jesus And you don't have to. You don't have to. You just come to him. You just come to him by grace through faith. That's it. If you today, if you're thinking that you want to be saved from the hopeless and helpless state of your own sin, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to the family of God. Everything has already been prepared for you by Jesus. (laughs) Everything's already been prepared for you by Jesus. All you have to do is place your faith in him and have a seat with us. Have a seat spiritually. Some others of us here, though, maybe... Maybe we knew the gospel at at one time, and we marveled at the free grace offered to us in Jesus. But somewhere along the way, we've gotten off track. How do you know if that's you? Well, because you feel worn down. You feel worn out. And you feel weighed down 
and all that you are doing for God instead of feeling joyful and in awe of what God has done for you. No matter how much we grow spiritually, we're not ever supposed to grow out of that initial joy and awe that we have in the grace of God in the gospel. We don't grow out of that. We're not supposed to grow out of that. And next week, we are going to discuss how good works tie in to the concept of salvation by grace alone. But for now, suffice it to say that if you feel weary and heavy laden, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You need to come back to Jesus for the rest that only he gives and be refreshed by just sitting in amazement at your own salvation. Sit in humble amazement at your own salvation. Amazement that God helps those... Let me edit this for Ben Franklin. We appreciate the other things he did. Amazement that God helps those who know they can't help themselves. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. And he does it by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, God, I confess, 13 years later, I am still in desperate need of this gospel. God, I'm still prone to run off and try to take matters into my own hands and get weary and worn out and forget the awe and the joy of salvation. God, that you've done it all for me. And so, I, God, I, I pray for all who are here this morning. I know they're all in different places in life, different levels of grasp of these doctrines. Father, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, it's clear for all the people that it needs to be clear for. I sense that, as always, your gospel is offensive, God. Your gospel is offensive to people who want to rely on their own strength. But if there's anyone in here this morning, God, I pray, who is weary and realizes that they're not enough, that they're a sinner, that they've been dead in their trespasses and sins, God, I pray that they would come to you this morning and that they would simply sit down, maybe for the first time, in faith in what you have already done for them in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.